Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. You know, around the world, we have more than a thousand, I think 1,100 plus Beeson graduates, alums, who are serving the cause of Christ in all kinds of places and doing wonderful work. Many of them listen to this podcast. Well, today I have the privilege of talking with one of our Beeson graduates. His name is Matt Pates. Matt, welcome to the Beeson podcast. Hi, Dr. George. Nice to talk to you. Now, uh, I want to just remind all of our listeners of when I first met you. And it was before you came to Beeson. I was speaking at California Baptist University where you were a student. And, you know, they had this big group of uh, people for me to speak to, students and so forth. And you stood out of the group. Uh, I remember your red hair. I remember your ruddy face. I remember your blazing eyes. I mean, and, and we began to talk, and uh, it just seemed to me like you were the kind of student we ought to invite to come to Beeson Divinity School. And we ended up doing that, and you came all the way from California to Alabama, became a student here at Beeson, and graduated from our program, our Master of Divinity, in 2008. Since then, you've gotten married. You're married to Nikki, and you all have two beautiful daughters, Allison May, who is five, and Lily Ann, who is three. Uh, where are you all living, Matt? We are in Roseville, California, um, just just north uh, east of Sacramento. Okay, so in the northern part of uh, California. That's right. Now, um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, your experience at Beeson, kind of as you thought about it. And then in particular, I want to focus on some struggles you've had with your health, serious problems and struggles you've had with your health in the days since you graduated from Beeson. So as you think back on Beeson, talk a little bit about your experience here and then introduce us to the issues you've been dealing with. Well, I always I always tell people uh, about Beeson uh that I, I really could not have asked or hoped for a better theological education. And then on top of that, the, the relationships that, that I've maintained uh, since leaving there, the uh, not just with students, but also with professors that, as we get into my story, talking about what's going on, the, the, the fact that these professors, these men that poured into my theological education have been there with words of encouragement that the, the communities continue to pray for me. Just the quality of education I got was, was, was amazing. And then the, the relationships with my peers, uh, my fellow students that I've maintained since then have been tremendous. And I really feel like what, what I got there was foundational to helping uh, me maintain maintain my course, especially over the last couple of years, and prepared me in, in, in a major way to do ministry. And that course, the last couple of years, has been dealing with a diagnosis of, well, originally, back in September 2012, uh, late stage three, possibly early stage four, it's since moved to stage four, uh, metastatic melanoma, which is um, skin cancer that basically got down deep inside uh, to the lymph nodes and, and moved around and that's been quite a journey for almost uh, September will be three years, and uh, it's had its ups and it's had its downs. Um, it was mostly down for a long time, and then with a tremendous up <laughs> recently, which has been yeah 
a tremendous grace. Now, how, how did you come to the awareness that this was a problem? Did you go in for a regular checkup or you just weren't feeling well? How, how did this come to your attention? I was actually jumping on a trampoline with my daughters. Uh, and uh, I hurt my back because I'm just not as young as I used to be. And uh, that led to a lot of massaging kind of my back and my, my legs uh, for the next week. And I found a lump down deep inside my thigh in my inner thigh and it, it just it was hard and it just it just didn't feel right so I immediately got it checked out and um, my doctor didn't see any reason to be concerned right away because it was small and she said just keep an eye on it and over that was in April 2012 and over the course of the next four months it, it got larger and I consistently was getting sick I was having colds and flus and just feeling really crummy until uh, one day I was out working with my dad in the backyard, and I spent the whole day doing some yard work in my backyard. And, and that night, uh, it just became extremely clear that I was not well. I did not recover well. I was running fevers, and Nikki insisted. She had to talk my dad into insisting that, that, that I go to the hospital, and I, I get it checked out. And that led to a surgery uh, for a biopsy that led to the lump being taken out and being confirmed as, as melanoma. Now, you were 30 years old or so? How old were you? I was, I was 30. I had just turned 30 when I, when I was diagnosed officially. How did your life change once that diagnosis was confirmed? Well, the, I mean, it, it's this amazing change, really, uh, where, where you have a moment where you think your life is about so many things, and you've got your work and your job and your ministry and, 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 and your kids and your family, and, and, and you're doing all these things. And then that doctor calls you up and says, you know, it, it's not good. It's cancer and it's, it's melanoma. And all of a sudden you realize that your life is about this thing, like this mm. one thing. Mm. And, uh, and it changes everything. I mean, all, now, now your life is based around treatments and testing and, and finding out what to do next and doctors. And, and, um, it, it can very quickly become the only thing that life is about. Um, or that's what it feels like in those, especially in those first weeks. Now, you had a number of treatments, as I remember being in touch with you about this. You shared this with us very openly at Beeson. and we began to pray for you with this specific issue in mind on a regular basis. And as you've already indicated, people at Beeson surrounded you in their love and prayers during this time. Uh, but there were, there were some treatments that did not work out. There were some ups and there were certainly some downs during those uh, first couple of years after the diagnosis. Uh, tell us about some of those difficult times. Well, we um, we immediately had the surgery to remove the lump and along with some other lymph nodes uh, to check to see if the, the cancer had moved. And that led to problems with my right leg, which are going to be permanent problems. No matter how long I live, I'll have swelling and issues in there. And I had radiation. And all that first three months was, was a very physical time of treatment that, that kind of just wore me out surgeries and radiation and that was all in the in the off chance a very small chance that if the melanoma was local we could stop it and so initially it seemed like we might have been in the clear we had about three months where the scans came back clean and, and all the melanoma had been taken out that was detectable and then in you know january of 2013 we found out it had moved to my left side and my doctors at Stanford immediately started pursuing a more more aggressive treatment. We 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 went to a treatment called interleukin, which was uh, about the worst thing that I've ever been through voluntarily, for sure. Um, was a treatment I had to receive in the hospital. I was hospitalized for a week to get it. 
made me extremely sick, tons of side effects. And, and then I got, I was supposed to get a second week in there and that failed to work. And so we never got back for the second week. And we had a couple months where pain started growing in my left side. I started hurting more and more and we weren't able to ever get back into that second treatment. So by April of that year, we had decided to move on to the second treatment, the second type of treatment, which was a new therapy that had just been approved by the FDA. And I was on that for three months. That basically, I felt like I had the flu for three months. I, I, I was running fevers and I was, I was having mouth sores and all kinds of issues on that. And at the end of that three months, we were very help, hopeful, but um, we went back in for the scan and everything had continued to grow. Now, we, we don't know if it did anything during that time. Yeah, the tumors I had grew, but none of my organs got involved. So maybe that uh, we can hypothesize all we want. But it was very, very defeating to spend mm. almost six months receiving two different types of treatments and have no results that looked very positive. And then I was introduced to a third treatment. Um, and my doctor at Stanford actually wanted me to get on this clinical trial that I'm on now. And in order to get on that clinical trial, I had to have failed Yervoy and the third treatment, which is Zelberaf. And so I had to start the Zelberaf and hope that it stopped working before I could get on the drug that everybody was saying, this is the drug you want to be on. And so I did the Zelberaf uh, treatment in the summer of 2013, which actually worked fairly well. Um, it shrunk the tumors. Um, I was able to take a, a vacation with my family, and, and it, it relieved a lot of my pain. Uh, it had some really terrible side effects as well, joint swelling, and, and I was I would sunburn in like three minutes. It was really it was really a strange feeling. I couldn't go outside. I, I had to dress like Michael Jackson. That was a <laughs> joke. I had to cover myself from head to toe, and that stopped working. We prayed all summer really to get on this new therapy that is just approved by the FDA in the last, well, in January it was approved, and uh, it was an anti-PD-1 is the scientific name, and it's the name of the drug is nivolumab, and it's an immunotherapy, and everything we'd heard about it was it's working in 30 or 40% of patients, and it's having long-term results, and, and we had been praying and praying to get on that, and the Zelberaf stopped working, and we went in and, applied, and, and, and signed up for the clinical trial at uh, San Francisco Oncology Associates in California Pacific Medical Center in San Francisco. And we um, were selected to be on the trial. And then I had to be randomly selected to receive that drug. And we did. And we found out that I was, I believe, the last or second to last person admitted to the clinical trial before they closed it. And we got on that, which was just a huge blessing. This was mm. where our hope our hope was. And during that whole course from Zelberaf to, to, to anti-PD-1, that was really the hardest season where my wife and I actually started talking about what we were going, what she was going to do when I passed away, because I was just getting increasingly sick, uh, mm. sicker and sicker. And so those were the hardest conversations I've ever had in my life about how she was going to approach life without me how we were going to set things up for our daughters, who was going to help her, and, and uh, really facing that reality. And, uh, your daughters are very started, young, Matt, when this was yeah. happening. They still are very young, but were, yeah. were they aware of this in any way, or how did you talk <clears throat> with them about it? My, uh, my youngest daughter, Lily, was named after the Lilies of the Field passage in the, in the Sermon on the Mount. Mm. And she is, she is truly... A physical example that God will always provide what we need. And she, we could not have asked for a more perfect baby to be born in this situation, full of joy, full of happiness, just easy as far as babies go. She was, she was just 
she snuggled. She went to sleep. She did everything that we needed her to do. So she was the reminder that God would provide everything we needed at the right time. My, my oldest daughter, she was three when I was diagnosed, and she was completely aware that there was something wrong. And it was actually extremely hard uh, for her and for us. We, we could tell that she was aware that her dad, who was, I mean, like, like I said, I was on a trampoline when this all started. And so I was a very active wrestling, tickle your daughter, throw her up in the air, run around mm-hmm. with her type of father. And all of a sudden I was on the couch and I wouldn't get off the couch for months at a time. She had no way of communicating this. I mean, she's three or four years old and, and, and she couldn't express her feelings. And so she acted out. And mm-hmm. she at one point even, she, she had a small wart on her on her on her back and when she could finally communicate when she was in, in her mid four year old stage she 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 asked if these were tumors like like mm. I had and so she was very aware that I was sick and there was something wrong and that things weren't right and she acted out according to that um, and since I've really been recovering she is she has blossomed and she's been able to to communicate her feelings about it and it's been it's been really, really tremendous to watch her grow, but she, she had a very difficult time with it, and it was, it was heartbreaking to see my, my three-year-old right. struggle through this with us. Talk about Nikki, your wife, who was standing beside your, uh, your life during this time in a very special way. First of all, I couldn't, I mean, I can't, I can't, I can't communicate enough what she has been through all of this. She is, she's been so much of the weight and the responsibility of, of running our family has fallen on her shoulders when I was when I was sick and she had to take care of me she had to take care of two young daughters and she had to run the house she had to make sure the bills got paid she had to make the meals and and she did it all uh, she she took that burden on her back and she did it she she has struggled obviously she she had she she's had her battle with faith and she's had her her struggle with uh, with with facing this down, but uh, the great thing is to watch her grow in trusting the Lord as this has gone on. I mean, frankly, when we were diagnosed, both of us felt abandoned in a way. Mm. Uh, we we felt we felt like uh, like God had almost turned His face. And I know we never arrived at that place, but there were seasons, there were days when 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 it felt that way. As God has continually provided through this situation, to watch her more and more see that God is going to give what we need when we need it uh, has been a blessing and she's uh you know she's doing better and she she's one of the one of the hardest parts about cancer and one of the things we've realized in 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 in, in this whole journey is that we can't we can't realize the fullness of each other's experience in this I want so bad to give what what she needs and I can't quite understand where she's at because she's she's the one that would have to live if I died and I'm the one that has to go through the process of being sick, and neither one of us can fully understand. So, uh, but she has been my rock. Uh, she really has. Now, it's been when, a struggle, though. When this happened, when when this uh, the diagnosis became evident uh, in your life, uh, you were serving as an associate pastor in two mm-hmm. small churches and the North American Baptist Conference in California, I believe. Mm-hmm. And um, so you were a pastor. You were a minister of the gospel. And you spoke about the personal struggle of faith and Nikki's struggles with faith. Uh, talk about this in terms of you being a pastor, you being a minister charged with ministering to others. Uh, how, um, how did that impact you? 
the very first thing that I said uh, when I was diagnosed was, I, I cannot do this if I don't believe that it will be used for the sake of spreading the gospel. This, this journey has to be used to glorify God. Otherwise, it's, it's not something I feel like I can face down. I want to see people glorify God because of this. And uh, I made a commitment very early on, really within the first week of diagnosis, that I was not going to let cancer determine whether or not I would continue uh, in ministry. So no matter how sick I got, I was going to to do uh, some sort of ministry. And that was kind of my conviction, and and I did. I did. I stayed, uh, I stayed in the preaching ministry, uh, and I stayed in the worship ministry as much as I physically was able to throughout the times I was the sickest. And it got harder and harder to maintain that conviction because I just wasn't healthy enough to make it to church every Sunday. But it was a blessing. Like, it really was a blessing uh, to be able to tell people that I'm trusting in the Lord. And I had many, many people that, that, that rejoiced. And God set up some really unique circumstances, like me being able to do this as a pastor. And we had, uh, at the church I was at, we had, a, we had a family show up about two weeks after I was diagnosed. I was able to share my story with them, and a week later, the wife was diagnosed with breast cancer. It just became a really, a really unique experience for me to be able to connect with people who are suffering in, in a way that I've never been able to. And, and that maintains, as I, as I go through thinking about um, or being in ministry, uh, identifying with the suffering. And as a pastor, I realized that my empathy and my sympathy towards those that got sick or dealt with health problems was never there the way that I thought it, the way that I thought I had empathy for people. I, mm. I, I thought I was empathetic. And, and I realized that when things like this happen, that people need pastoral care and they need people uh, who, who legitimately feel uh, for kind of the devastating nature of, of a diagnosis like this, whether it's cancer or, or, or whatever struggle, drug addictions or, or, or uh, family problems, divorces, whatever they're going through, they need a pastor that, that knows, knows where they're at. And so um, it's definitely been huge influencing uh, and influencing how I interact with, with people in, in the congregations that I'm, I've been a part of and, and how I preach the gospel, how I relate to people and their experience. You know, you said uh, your time here at Beeson has proven to be very helpful as you face this struggle that you certainly didn't anticipate uh, when you graduated from our school a few years ago. Uh, is there a particular uh, passage of Scripture or lesson that you learned here that you'd like to share with others? There are. <laughs> like there's, there's countless. Um, and and as, I go through, as I go through the seasons of, of kind of the, the journey I was on, from being diagnosed till now, uh, John chapter six, where where Jesus asked the disciples after after he he tells the crowds that if you want any part of me, you must eat eat my flesh and drink my blood. And everybody leaves, and he asks, "Are you going to go too?" And they say, "Well, where else are we going to go? You have the words of life." And there were many times when <laughs> that was that was my faith. My faith was, I don't know that. What you have in store for me, Lord, but I know that you have the words of eternal life. And so my faith is in you for this trial. My faith is in you for my whole life. The, uh, 
the last uh, verses of Psalm 27, that I will again look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, mm. um, were words that I have clung to. It was actually the passage of Scripture I read before I went in the day I, was, I began the journey down diagnosis. When I went in knowing something was wrong, I read those words, and I felt like God really said right then and there that, that, that not yet, you know, you're, you're, you're here, and I'm going to be with you. And, and, and I knew that I would again look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, and I feel like that has, that has manifested itself in my, in my story. Jonah, the whole, the whole narrative of him uh, and his prayer in the belly of the whale, mm. feeling like he's locked down under the sea and, 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 and coming back to, to hope, being spewed out on the beach. Uh, the prophet Jonah has been a huge source of, of inspiration for me and, and, and maintaining my faith, knowing that redemption will come. And, and I will see the goodness of the Lord. And those are the passages of Scripture that I have, I have come back to again and again and again. And then um, theological truths have, have been mm. ground down to the bare essentials. And I have clung to the, the, the two biggest questions I had were, is God good and does he really love me? And I have come down to where my faith is those two essentials are so important, that God is good and that he loves me. And God is good, and He loves me. And there were times when that is all I, I, I could say to myself. I know that God is good, and that He loves me. And and Dan Stockham, actually, who we had dinner with in Rome, was was essential to reminding me reminding me of that. And he he's been just an amazing friend. When I was diagnosed, I cleaned pools as well as I, well. I was pastoring churches. I, I cleaned pools for a, a local Christian business owner, uh, and. Uh, Dan would stay on the phone with me. I'd be on my cell phone with my earpiece, and and for three weeks, four weeks after I was diagnosed, Dan would stay on the phone with me for three to four hours at a time while I was at working every day, just reminding me that God is good, that yeah. God is good, um, because I was so afraid. And man, he he really was was a rock for me as well. You mentioned um, our dinner in Rome uh, when uh, when you and Dan were students. I have had happened to be in in Rome, Italy. And you all came over, I think it was on spring break, and we ended up having dinner together. And I remember there was a close close brush with the Italian police. You all were renting <laughs> one of those Vespas or motor scooters, and there was a little parking problem. But I, you, you escaped okay, but I had my worries and doubts about you. Yes, we, we in Florence, we rented a couple scooters, and uh, we had a ton of fun on them one afternoon, driving them around. And we pulled up to our hostel and uh, parked them and went out to dinner and came back, and when we got back, they were gone. <laughs> and uh, we had a note on our, on our hostel door. It was written in English from the, the, the hostel owner, and it said, you park scooters in bad place. They're gone. <laughs> <laughs> and so we walked out, and we had parked them in front of a police station. Uh, and the deposit for the scooters from, you know, American students was your passport. So <laughs> we couldn't just walk away. <laughs> they had our passports. And so we spent the next day trying to figure out how to get these scooters out of the impound with a, with a business owner who spoke no English. It was, it's actually one of the stories Dan and I come back to repeatedly. Probably we touch on it once a month talking to each other. Yeah. How <laughs> funny that day was well, trying and I remember our, our dinner and, and gelato in Rome uh, as you were mm-hmm. had just come through this experience. We were a little bit harrowed as a result of it. Yes, we were. 
Well, we were. listen, it's great to connect with you by this uh, telephone conversation and share that your story with our, our Beeson podcast listeners. You're talking to people, um, Matt, that love you and care for you and have prayed for you and will still do so. And I wonder, as we just have to bring this to a close, if you wanted to ask in some special way of how we could pray for you in these times. First off, I'd just like to say thank you for all the prayers, um, all the support. Um, I can't quantify what people have done for me and uh, and my family, Beeson alumni, church members. This whole experience has made me realize how ready, uh, how ready Christ's church is to fill the needs uh, of, of people who have needs. And that uh, it, it, it opened me up. It made me very vulnerable. And uh, I, I, I like to call people out and say, if we, if we would allow ourselves to be vulnerable, to each other in the church community and, and allow ourselves to be humble enough to share our needs and our experience, we will see Christ fill up the church in, in, in marvelous ways, which is what he's done for me and my family through the church. Specifically for us, for pray, prayer right now, we just pray for continued health. My most recent PET scan uh, shows no active tumors, which is just something that we never imagined would happen mm. again. Mm. Um, that, you know... Today, I could say that, that I may be cancer-free, and, and I take that, that journey a day at a time. Um, and, and so we pray for continued good, good health. We're praying for, uh, for opportunities for, for, for how I should go about being back in the ministry. I've been on uh, kind of a sabbatical from the ministry for, for about a year. We, we got to a place where we finally had to just stop and focus on, 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 on our family. And uh, so... We are we're, we're we're exploring how to go about getting back into the ministry and what we should do next as a family. We uh, pray for my my daughters and my wife uh, and and myself that we would we'd have a peace um, every day and that we would know we would continue to believe and trust that God is going to provide in every way. And I would pray that uh, that my experience uh, would continue to feed my passion to preach the gospel because that's really what I want in life. If anything, this experience has, has made it very clear to me that the only thing I want my life to be about is, is, is Jesus. I want my life to be about Jesus. And if at the end of the day, that's what people say about me, that, that this man loved Jesus and he wanted others to love Jesus, then, then I can die a happy man. I can die a happy man knowing that. Wonderful. And so those are the things you can pray for. And, and been, it's, I, as I say it, I've said it since the beginning. It's really kind of a weird thing to say, but in every way, uh, cancer is a blessing, except for the fact that it's trying to kill you. <laughs> it <laughs> right. makes you appreciate everything about life, and it makes you appreciate the gospel, and it makes you appreciate your church and your family and your friends for what they, they truly mean to you. And I think that's what suffering does for us. I think that it opens our eyes to, to the goodness that Christ has given. A few minutes ago, you quoted a verse very important to you at the end of Psalm 27, the beginning of Psalm 27, verse 1, says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? And I give that verse to you, Matt, and may the Lord use it to strengthen you in your faith. We thank God for you and for your witness, and we pray every blessing on you in this next stage as you continue to trust and walk with, with Jesus Christ. I've been speaking today on the Beeson Podcast with Matt Pates, He's a native of California. He's a 2008 graduate of Beeson Divinity School. He's married to Nikki. They have two daughters, Allison May and Lily Ann. 
Uh, he shared with us today very openly about his struggle with cancer and the presence of Christ he found as he walked through the valley of the shadow of death. God bless you, Matt, in everything you're doing. Thank you, Dr. George. I appreciate it. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.